Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran and my co-host is always Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore joining us. And Arsene, my goodness, what a read we've had. What a treat for the month of May. But delighted to say it's a Colorado author. So who have we been reading for the month of May, Arsene? We've been reading Bohini Vara and the book is The Immortal King Rao. And it's just a fabulous book. It takes you back into uh, the history of India right after uh, independence. It takes you to the beginning of like tech startups, and then it takes you into the future, and it's quite a harrowing future. So I'm really looking forward to getting into all these uh, topics with Vahini. Well, Vahini, we are delighted to have you as our guest today. Welcome to the Radio Book Club. Thank you for having me. I love the I love the bookstore, and I'm so excited to be doing this show. Well, as Arson described there, this touches on so many different things. It's a parable. It's a fairy tale. It's science fiction. It's dystopian. It's history. It's all of that. And so let's dive right back to the beginning, I guess, of who King Rao is. And he was born in India and then became the most powerful person in the world. But who is King Rao? So he is born as a child in the 1950s um, on this coconut grove in the south of India. He's born into a Dalit family at the bottom of the Indian Hindu caste hierarchy. And um, his family is sort of upwardly mobile and he is a precocious child. And so he eventually grows up to move to the U.S. in the 1970s, and there he starts a tech company with um, his professor, his college professor, and his professor's daughter. Um, and then this company, as you say, grows to become the biggest company in the world, and then it eventually um, engineers, King eventually engineers a sort of global world takeover of all world governments. And so what we are left with instead of governments is the algorithm, the all-seeing algorithm and people are reduced to being shareholders, We're no longer citizens of individual countries. We are shareholders ruled essentially by an algorithm because it is thought in this uh, near future that that would be a much better job than the human run democracies that have led to this dystopian future. In fact, it's the reality we're living through now with the climate crisis. But in your book, it's called Hot House Earth. So talk about the algorithm and how technology has essentially completely taken over from any form of democracy. Yes. So the idea in the book, and this is an idea that is borrowed from real life, right? It's something that we hear too in our culture is that um, algorithms have the potential to make better informed decisions than we as humans can do because we as humans um, are biased and we're fallible and we don't individually have complete information. So the idea here is that if you feed an algorithm all the information it needs, all the inputs it needs, then it's gonna make a better decision than we can make. Of course, there are flaws in this idea, um, but that's the sort of premise of, of this imagined government um, in which decisions are made by algorithm. I mean, one of the big flaws in this type of thing is that um, all our biases would get fed into the information for the algorithm. And, uh, and so while it seems like this should be some really fair thing and everybody should be taken care of to some extent, it, it doesn't work out that way. And in, in your world, in fact, you do see those biases recreated, human biases, by the algorithm, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of um, 
a lot of fiction that engages with technology um, considers how the technology itself is potentially ruinous. Um, I think I was, which is a valid way to think about it. I think I was especially interested though in the ways in which we as humans um, and we as societies create technology, like we're the ones who create technologies. And so we embed in those technologies, our own, um, our own pa bad patterns, our own biases, our own discriminatory, discriminatory thinking, our own um, sort of capitalistic way of thinking. So you tell this story through King Rao's daughter, Athena. And, you know, I was curious, why, you know, why did you give it, why did you decide on that point of view? What does that give you kind of looking uh, at this character, this kind of amazing, most famous person in the history of the world, basically character from the outside like that? What, what was the impetus to create a, uh, a character like Athena? And tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, so when I started writing this book, I started it 13 years ago, a long time ago, and I was on a train ride with my dad in, we were traveling, my dad's married to a Brazilian woman, and we were traveling, I was traveling with my dad and his wife in South America. We were on a train, and I remember my dad was like teasing me about only writing short stories. I was in graduate school at the time and was like, you know, you should really write a novel. And so teasingly, I asked him in return what my novel should be about. And he said, well, why don't you write about the coconut grove where I grew up? My family is fascinating. And his family is fascinating. My family on his side is fascinating. Um, and my dad's side of the family is Dalit. They did grow, my dad did grow up on a coconut grove in the South of India. Um, and he did immigrate uh, to the West, to Canada in his case um, in the 1970s. And so he gave me this germ of, of an idea for a character who grows up in a place like that. But then of course, um, I've never lived on a coconut grove in South India. I've gone back and visited my family coconut grove, but I never lived there. Um, I don't speak the language my dad grew up speaking. Um, I'm I'm female, not male. You know, um, I am Dalit through my dad, but like didn't didn't grow up facing the kind of caste discrimination of an oppression that he and others in his family did. And so I felt very distant myself, just as an author, like as as somebody who would be the one creating some kind of voice to tell the story felt very distant from, from that experience. Um, I also knew that King Rao would grow up to start a tech company in the 1970s, which again is, is, is subject matter I'm familiar with from my previous work as a reporter at the, as a tech reporter. Um, but, um, but again, it's not something I've experienced myself. And so at the time that I was thinking about writing this book, I was watching the Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica reboot from the mid 2000s with my husband. And there's this technology in there um, that allows these sort of android sort of characters to, um, to reach into the consciousness of humans um, and to sort of connect to the internet with their minds. And so, um, and so I thought to myself like, oh, if I could just have some technology like that, that could be the sort of like narrative consciousness of the book, then I could tell these stories about King Rao um, on the Coconut Grove in the 1950s, in the U.S. in the 1970s, without, as an author, having to try to embody King Rao. Um, and so it was solving this sort of, like, writing problem for me, really, to, to create this, this voice. And then for years and years and years, I didn't know who that voice was. It was just this voice. And friends and my husband, who's also a writer, would read drafts of the book and be like, okay, so who is this person talking? Like, 
Is it a person? Is it human? Does it have a body? Does it have a gender? Does it have a race? Like I, and I didn't know the answers to those questions. And over time, over a really long period of time, I kept writing and writing and came to understand that this voice was actually emerging from King Rao's daughter and her name was Athena and she's telling the story. As you said, your inspiration for the origin story, I guess, of King Rao was your own dad's story. And that was a coconut farm in India and Dalit. And this talks about the caste system. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit because we talked about how inequality under the algorithm, essentially, it was grandfathered in from regular society. What I really found fascinating was all of these sort of parallel discussions around inequality, whether it's in this new world order, the the social capital, that's the currency that you have, or back in the more olden times, 1950s India, when you had a very concrete class system called a caste system. And your father was born into that. So for people who aren't familiar, you know, who Dalits are and what they represent, there are two castes, particularly mentioned Dalits, which is Raz caste, and then Brahmins, which are hinted at, certainly in the book, as being sort of of a higher social class. So talk about the caste system. Yeah. So, you know, like many systems that we construct, you know, the caste system is a is an invention of humans um, bound up in Hinduism, which is the most prominent religion in India um, that stratifies people. Um, you know, we can say stratifies people arbitrarily. There's a kind of logic to the caste system embedded in its history, but there are various sort of classes. So there's a there's a sort of intellectual priest class. There's a warrior class. There's a merchant class. Um, and then kind of outside of this system, one could say, or at the bottom of the system, depending on how one thinks of it, um, is Dalits, people who are sort of kind of, kind of considered outside of the caste system, um, so far below the caste system that they aren't they aren't even given a given a caste um it's a system of oppression that's that's sort of used to justify oppression right because the sort of philosophy embedded in the system is you know it's important to accept your lot in life right it's important to accept your place in the in 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 society and you have been given a place right according to this caste system it's not negotiable um and so my dad's family um, is Dalit. I, you know, my family on my dad's side is, is Dalit. And an interesting thing happened over the course of the 20th century where um, there were starting to be some opportunities for upward mo- mobility for Dalit. So in my dad's family, for example, they had been laborers on this coconut grove um, in the South of India, but over the course of the 20th century in the early part of the 20th century, they were able to gain ownership of this coconut grove um, in part because the Brahmin family that owned it, you know, the, the, the children of the Brahmin patriarch ended up, you know, moving to the city and, um, and not continuing to work as farmers. And so, you know, this land was just, it was, it was there and it was available. And my dad's family had made some good decisions, you know, savings decisions, business decisions, of their own and they were able to take ownership of that land, which is true of uh, you know many Dalit families over the course of the 20th century. Um, there were also some reforms that allowed Dalit people to have more access to things like education and government jobs. And so there was a big shift that took place over the 20th century, but just like in the US with the civil rights movement, like that shift wasn't unambiguously in a positive direction, right? Um, so just as it's true that discrimination and racism and bigotry exists today. Um, that's it's also that's also true of caste in India today. And so it's a complicated 
sort of nuanced situation, but I think there's some parallels between um, how we understand race in the U.S. and how caste is understood in India. Well, one of the major themes of the book as well is the fact that it's it's in this time of absolute climate crisis, which is very close to reality. And maybe we're a lot closer than when you first started writing this book 13 years ago. Um, and it's called Hothouse Earth. And Arsene, I know that we always like to invite folks to read a passage. So, um, Rahini, can you read a little bit from the uh, Immortal King round? This passage really sort of nails exactly what's happening with the environment and the world during this time. So this passage is talking about Athena, the narrator, falls in eventually with a group of um, sort of separatist radicals. Um, And this is describing the experience of of those radicals. Um, There's a reference to a she, and that she is somebody named Elemen, who is one of the primary uh, radical separatist characters in the book. And then Hothouse Earth arrived. The wildfires that began in spring and lasted all summer. The droughts that were such old news that they no longer showed up in headlines. Each new pandemic beginning just after the previous one was under control. That's when she understood the full extent of it. The exes, and that's the name of the the group, by the way. The exes, in leaving all those years ago, had made the tactical error of their lives. More than that, she had made the tactical error of her life. In agreeing to create the blank lands, the board had been playing a long game. First, the exes would be marginalized. Then their homes would be submerged. How stupid she had been. She had let herself believe that they had defeated the board of shareholders when all along it had been the board that had defeated them. That's what attracted her to me when we met, she said. My sense of clarity about the truth. She'd almost let her friends convince her she was the crazy one. We've been out here all this time waiting for the right moment to present everyone with a better future, she said. But you and I, we get it. We've got to stop waiting. That's author Vahini Vara reading from her brand new novel, The Immortal King Rao. And just to clarify some of the terms in there, the exes are this group of folks who have disengaged themselves essentially from this new world order that's run by uh, the board, as it's referenced there, and governed essentially by an algorithm. And they've been allowed to live on these islands, you know, just islands off the the coast of, of major countries called the blank lands. And of course... They will be impacted by rising seawater and everything. So, you know, the climate crisis or hothouse earth just encompasses everything. Now, when you first started writing this 13 years ago, was the writing on the wall as to where, because this is very close to the truth, wildfires being year round and, and each surpassing the next in terms of intensity. So when you first started writing this and, and hothouse earth was a concept for the book, did you have a sense that we were not that far away from the future you were describing? I did not. And a funny thing, I mean, not funny, haha, uh, but a funny thing that happened over the course of writing this book is that I would invent these futures, you know, this these dystopian sort of terrifying futures and put them on the page and, you know, Im- imagine what that might look like. And then over the course of the writing, reality would catch up to it. And I'd be like, oh, shoot, like, what I'm putting on the page isn't, isn't, you know, reflective of some dystopian future that we might arrive at. It's actually happening now. So then I would keep having to revise and sort of turn the, 
turn the story another, you know, turn the dial, uh, so to speak, another notch, um, so that it, it really would look like something that's happening in the future rather than being too close to, to current reality. Yeah, you have the line in there about the pandemic. And of course, you know, as we're entering whatever the sixth wave here of the coronavirus, and, you know, I just thought that was, it gives it such a, a realism, you know, the, the future seems like a real place. I, I also liked in that passage, you talk about how there was, there was these protests and the group, the exes, ends up taking a deal where they'll go to these islands. And I thought that was kind of brilliant because you can see, like you said, they're playing the long game, the government, you know, like the islands are only going to be, they're not going to be there that much longer. And I thought that was really interesting. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more that that passage is, is really basically element speaking and I speaking and I, maybe that, that was a character that had a really interesting history and, and was at the forefront of these protests that you uh, have in the book. Talk about the, the character in the world that this is a world that Athena kind of uh, comes upon uh, later in the book. But tell us about the world that Elman and her cohort are, are trying to found. Yeah. So um, Athena, when the book opens, um, Athena has been imprisoned because she is suspected of being somehow involved in the killing of her father. And she's like telling the story of her father's life and her own life as part of her effort to exonerate herself essentially. And so she starts at the beginning, um, both of King Rao's life and of her own. Um, and so we learn about her childhood on this island um, off the coast of Seattle with her father. It's like this otherwise uninhabited island that she's living on with her dad. And then at some point she decides to leave that island. She's fed up with her father. She's got an inkling that like his worldview isn't necessarily the sort of be all end all correct worldview. So she leaves that island and makes her way to Bainbridge Island, which people who you know are aware of know about the Seattle area might, might find familiar. She makes her way to Bainbridge Island, which is one of these islands that the separatist group, the exes has um, been given control of. And all her life, she's sort of had this idea of the exes based on sort of what she's read in the media as a kind of sinister, um, radical in a bad way force. Like there are these sort of bad guys that are trying to disrupt the world order. Um, and then she gets there and she starts to meet these people and she realizes that another way of looking at this is that they're idealists who, um, who are trying to forge a better way of living and, um, you know, inflicted some violence along the way. Uh, but at the same time, it's also true that her father in his way with his company inflicted a sort of great large scale violence of his own. And so her understanding of who these people are gets complicated. Um, what she sees is a group of people who are trying to live outside of this sort of global capitalist system. Um, you know, they're, they're growing their own fruits and vegetables. They're bartering and trading with um, people living on other islands around the world. They're a, a big component of what they what makes this sustainable is that they accept um, donations and help from people who are living in the shareholder system, um, but you know are sympathetic to their cause and are sort of secretly you know giving them resources that they need. Um, and they're trying to like they're just trying to imagine a better way of life um, and provide a model for those living on the mainland in the in the mainstream system to sort of look at and say, 
all right, well, maybe, maybe, we, maybe there's a different way that we can, that we can live. And they organize their society collectively. It reminded me in many ways of those early days in the garden back in India with the coconut farm where you had multiple families living together, but everybody almost worked together. But then this free market mentality sort of came into the coconut grove, the garden, and it broke up that reality everyone was now okay we're going to pay you a wage and so you can buy your own groceries so we're not all going to cook together and I I just thought those two parallel images of how collectively organizing society can work so well and yet we've worked so hard to completely dismantle that yeah there's so much pressure against that way of living right um it's um it's so much easier in some ways to sort of keep growing and growing and growing, growing and moving toward this ideal of, you know, more of everything, right. More, more, more money, more exploitation, um, more efficient quote unquote use of resources, um, which is a very capitalistic way of thinking. And I was interested in the ways in which like, you know, we think of this as a, as a very contemporary problem. And I was interested in ways in which the novel could sort of, show the kind of long arc of history and the way in which like some of the things that feel like very contemporary problems like were seeded a long time ago, seeded, S-E-E-D-E-D, a long time ago. But one of the other things I, I found really interesting was that because it's so much parallels to what we're going through now, this idea that the shareholders hold, so the shareholders, you know, former citizens, you know, because those democracies don't exist, it's all shareholders under a board, governed essentially by an algorithm. Shareholders believe that technology will ultimately save them from hothouse earth as opposed to just stopping everything that has led us up to that point. And, you know, you've been writing about tech as a journalist for for many years. That, to me, seems to be a theme that's coming out very much from Silicon Valley and these sort of tech entrepreneurs that, oh, we'll find a technological solution to this as opposed to going back to collectively organizing things in a non-capitalistic way. Yeah, there's a sort of like rhetorical purpose that innovation serves, right? So on the one hand, it's kind of incredible that humans are capable of these kinds of innovations, right? Like we actually can build really interesting things. Um, and I find that very, like, I find it exciting and admirable, like as a, as a human and as a writer in the book, like I didn't want that necessarily to be you know, a sort of black and white negative thing, right? Like I think innovation can be exciting. And at the same time, it's used by those in power um, as, a, as a political tool um, and as a tool for control. And, um, and right, like, like on the one hand, we can say, if there's a technology that can like, you know, suck carbon out of the air, right? That's a positive thing. That's true and it's worth pursuing. And at the same time, if everybody is told, oh, there's a there's this very promising technology that's gonna solve suck carbon out of the air, we're getting really close. We just need to pour a bunch of money into it. It's gonna be fine. It also serves as a rhetorical tool to like take pressure off of the idea that it's useful to do anything else, to do anything politically or socially um, or economically, right? To um to 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 stop emitting so much carbon in the first place. Yeah, you know, when I read the book, every time I looked at the news, I thought of the book every single time, whether it was Elon Musk doing something as a tech person who 
I felt was inadvertently even uh, making a case for your book in a way, like look how out of control <laughs> tech, tech people could be, you know, or whether it was a story in California where a desalination plant was voted down, um, which seems like a very tech answer to this endless drought we're in in the West. But, you know, they in that case, it was interesting because they fought back against it, saying, well, it's going to kill so much marine life. It's going it, you know, to the, the, the effects on the ocean are going to be so bad. And so I really thought the canvas that you're working on here is so broad and so rich that um, that I really finding things every single day that make me think of the book. And, you know, I guess what's your reaction to that? Or, you know, now that you finished the book, you said you worked on it for 13 years. And as you see it out in the world and it's interacting with the world and the response it gets, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a somewhat generic answer, I think, to a very specific question. Um, but this is my first book. I've been working on it for 13 years. I wanted to write a book. Um, that has some critique in it, that's engaging with um, the, the problems of the world that we live in. And it's been really gratifying to see that people are reading that, you know, like I, I wasn't I wasn't sure what people would get out of the book, whether it would just, you know, be a fun story to read or whether people would really engage with the, the sort of critique embedded in the book. Um, and I really see the latter happening and, um, and it feels meaningful to, to be in conversation in that way. There were so many things that just resonate with what's happening now. When you said earlier, over the course of 30 years, things were actually manifesting that you had written in the, you know, the future, but it was actually coming true. And, and one of those that I just thought was actually really funny because I'm endlessly just amused by this whole idea is that people would retrain to be an influencer, that an influencer is a, a huge career choice. And, you know, we're looking at the fact that you have certain people on social media who have, you know, arguably more power than many politicians in terms of the amount of people who follow them and actually pay attention to what they're doing. And many young people, that's their aspiration is to have a TikTok account with enough hits to that to then be a career. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm 39. To me, there's a, an aspect of that that seems like silly or superficial or unimportant, right? But, you know, I, I as, as you mentioned, there's this concept in the book of social capital, so which sort of um, is a conflation of like the idea of having a lot of followers on a social media platform and like actual capital, actual money, right? Um, so those are in this, in this imagined world, those are sort of thrown together into the same concept. Um, and it's not hard to imagine, right? A, a not too distant future in which, um, that's really the case. I was talking to a friend who works at a startup um, that whose customers um, are families and their kids. And she was telling me about talking to a kid. Do you rather have a thousand dollars or a thousand new followers? And the kid said, "Oh, a thousand followers, obviously." You know, there was no there was no question. Um, and you know, this is the next generation. And um, you know, not to be too cheesy about it, but like the, they're sort of the terms of how currency is going to work in the future and it's true it's you know it's probably factually true that there's an extent to which a thousand followers is more valuable than a one-time payment of a thousand dollars right um it's fascinating it's it's disturbing there's there's comedy in this book and some of the comedy comes from a juxtaposition when when athena gets to the island and she kind of drags herself out of the ocean and that she's you know after swimming 
And the first guy she meets is obviously this guy who kind of tells his story and his job has disappeared and he was being retrained to be an influencer. And he was a, like to see like the worst possible person who could be an influencer. It was kind of comic. And so I, I, I like how you mine kind of the juxtapositions of where the world's going with who people are for humor in the book. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. As a, as a reporter, as a business reporter, like I have, um, spent some time paying attention to like these pro like these retraining programs right that say like well this one industry is going away and in that region this under other industry is growing so we're just gonna retrain the people who were doing x to do y instead and i think i was sort of imagining like just that taken to its natural conclusion right like like what's like what what would that look like to the extreme um and again it's not so different from from what we're already trying to do what's an incredible book there are so many themes but you weave them together absolutely masterfully and so people have been listening go hang on is this about india is this about the future is this about climate change what's going on it's about all of that but it all as i said is woven together so masterfully by uh, vahini vara whose first and newest novel is the immortal king rao and she has been our guest at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much. Thanks for writing this. I think this is, as I said, this is going to take off globally because it's so unusual and it's so well done. So we appreciate you joining us here at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much for having me and for just engaging so thoughtfully with the book. It really means a lot to me. As we always do at the end of each Radio Book Club episode, we announce what we are reading for the next month. So Arson, who and what are we reading for the month of June? We're going to read Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss. Krauss is somebody who was a fiction writer who became a private detective. And it's about her story of being a private detective and some personal things she went through. And also the case that she really worked on, which was the CU uh, football case with the um, sexual assault. And um, it's a really interesting, talking about weaving different things together, that's really what this nonfiction book does. It's weaving those three elements together. Well, do read along with us for the month of June and of course, catch that interview on the 4th Thursday in June at 9am on KGNU. But don't forget, subscribe to the podcast of the Radio Book Club so you never miss an episode. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of The Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.